on today's episode, we talk about David Spam Bauer, also Donovan Franks. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. People put it down, but what you're supposed to do in a small town. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Dan. Hey, and... Oh, shut up. <laughs> and my name's Drew. How's it going? And we are glad that you're here. And to start out this episode, we want to give a huge shout out to Claire Jeans, our newest patron on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Y'all want to be as cool as her in California, PC? Then go to Patreon.com. Really? We've got some really funny, funny stuff on there. We've got some good stuff, but <laughs> you've got to go and you've got to become a patron to see it or hear it. Not see it, Riri. Well, just actually, it blurs out the picture. Okay. But okay. yeah, other than Patreon, which we really would love for you to join. Yeah. The must is please go to whatever platform you use to listen to us and rate, rate and, and review. We read each review. We love the reviews. Please, please, please rate and review. Come on. We want to. Let's get up there climbing towards the plagiarized crime junkie. Wait, Come on. We're wait. climbing toward them. Wait. But we need reviews. Okay. And, and um, second of all, starting today, we will start telling y'all our sources because we don't want to be like other podcasts, <coughs> crime junkie, oh my God. and be plagiarizing shit. We like to create our own shit. Okay. And so we'll tell you where we get Where'd from. you get yours from? Oh, is that all we're going to talk about? No, um... Um, please go on Twitter as well and make sure that you follow us. Just look Did up. Did you call a twat? Yeah, I did. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, I did. You're a twat. <laughs> I did. Whatever. Um, just look up "bad in the boondocks" and we should pull up, pull up. But our what? our handle is boondocks bad in the. Well, ha- yeah, but I have no idea why it's uh, like I'll that. I'll tell you why. Hashtag. I'll tell you. Bad boondocks. Or at. I thought it was at. Not hashtag. Yeah, it is at. It is well, at. Bad I'll boondocks. tell you why it's that. Drew set that up. Drew set up the Twitter. No, there's you can't change that. I know because you fucked up the first time. You no, set it I up. did not. Well, oh my goodness. No, I didn't. We all know it ain't magic, right, y'all? Whatever. Anyway. Or go on Instagram, but Instagram ain't as popular. But I still, those of you Instagrammers, it's okay if you're on Instagram. I see you it's got fine. a new do. So odd. Oh my gosh, shut up. No. I, di- I didn't ask you to say anything, sir. I just now noticed it. It's got a thing going on. Yeah, whatever. <coughs> Asshole. Okay. Well, Dude, anyways, is that how you told her to do it? Well, I sort of say cut more off the top than what she actually did. But anyway, after I didn't really look at to it, whatever, dude. Facebook, 
and look up Bad in the Boondocks, and there's a page, and it's growing. We got some likes, likes, likes. So go ahead and like that page on Facebook. <laughs> all right. Well, you're going to tell where you got your crap from? First of all, I'm going to tell you who my crap is. <laughs> well, no, because you no, say. No, for real true. I took a crap today, and it oh looked gosh. just like this It looked this like your person. face. Anyway, well, say, no. no, say where you got it from, and I'll say where mine's from. At your time. No, I won't say it now. We'll say it. Serial Killer Blogspot. I don't know if it's .com or .org. It's just that's the name of it. Wow, you really went deep into your research. A whole one website. Wow. No, folks. but I mean, if one website has what you need, right, then you go to right. it. But it's, it's actually pretty cool because they've got like almost like comic uh-huh. things like on face. there. And then the story stuff like that basically but um you go ahead and do yours sir uh ma'am ma'am i will (laughs) anyway i am doing who um david spambauer you know there's a lot of people named david dude there is like david and goliath however what there are not a lot of people with last names Spanbauer. Spanbauer. Yeah. Yeah, so David Spanbauer. Yes, and I got my information from wickedwee.com. Wickedweed? Wicked we. Sounds like fun. Wicked we. Okay. Serial killer of Wisconsin dot weebly dot com. Okay. And also true. I'm at freerepublic.com. Free Republic. Yes. Okay. And I am going to just go ahead and this is going to be a huge spoiler, but this time my serial killer is actually dead. Woo woo. Really? Yes, he died at age 61. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good justice. Nature's justice. Yes. In so many crime stories, you know, hunters are a lot of times the first people to find a body. It's either hunters or somebody walking their damn dog. That's true. Yes. That is true. That's yeah. why I don't walk my dog on a leash. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ones the rural police call to help with searches for lost hikers and missing people. Sometimes their dogs are the first to find the lost person. The hunters stalk through the woods with eyes open looking for tracks and minute sounds of not just their quarry, but any disturbance in the woods because they're looking for that deer, that turkey, or that hog. Yeah. Rarely do they come across the horrifying. Mostly they have a peaceful day in the fields and forests, Usually, in order to access the woodlands, they are forced to park their trucks along the ditches of the wooded back roads. Well, two hunters found the body of a 12-year-old girl in a ditch along a country road. Country road. Take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, anyway. It was September the 10th, 1994. That was a good year. Near the it's sea. always around your... No, that's away from my birthday. Well, I meant it's from there, but mine's... Oh, I'll get into mine later. 
That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> You're so friggin' funny. <laughs> Near the small village of Kempster, an area known as the gateway to Wisconsin's North Woods. There were no clothes on her body, and her hands were bound behind her back with ripped shreds of a pink T-shirt. That's sad. She had been beaten. She had been raped. She had been strangled. She was also stabbed in the abdominal area and her chest. Mm. She had been there for five days. The hunter-slash-killer left one clue. One small clue. A tiny speck of evidence that would later be used against him. You know what it was? A single carpet fiber. Carpet fiber. Found in the girl's, on the girl's body next week on Forensic Files. Is that always that carpet fiber? (laughs) It's always. I mean, it's so friggin' tiny. It can be like a little speck. Mm Mm-hmm. Leads him right there. David Frank Spambauer. He was born into a blue-collar German Catholic family in January of 1941 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oshkosh. He was the oldest child of Frank and Evelyn Spambauer, and he had two younger sisters, Judy and Mary. Frank was tough on his only son, and they had a troublesome relationship. And when David was 14, his father passed away from a heart problem. The scores of black out entries on Spambauer's juvenile record indicate that he had some few tangles with the law in his teenage years. He dropped out of Oshkosh High School just after his 17th birthday and joined the Navy. In the Navy. He was a basket case in the military. He received three court martials for being absent without leave and spent seven months in the brig. His mother received a letter from naval doctor saying that they thought David needed some psychiatric care, but no further mention was made of this issue. He received a dishonorable discharge and returned to Wisconsin in November of 1959. Yeah. After his aborted attempt at Navy life, he went back to Oshkosh High School. You know you've got to be popular whenever you're like that old going back to high school. For real. To pick up where he left off, but soon his twisted inclinations propelled him into the first major criminal event in his life. And that was on January 3rd, 1960. He broke into a home in Appleton and made away with two diamond rings, a hunting knife, a box of booze, and some cash, and a 22 handgun. One night later, in Nina, a town 10 miles north of Oshkosh, he robbed a home with his new pistol. Look at my pistol. Wow. Isn't it big? Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> a week later in Appleton, a mother slept in another room while her 13-year-old daughter studied. A masked man entered the house and stole some cash. He flashed a pistol at the girl and hauled her out behind the garage. I'm going to rape you, he said. What does that mean? The girl said. The 19-year-old Spambauer answered by smacking her twice. The girl screamed and attracted the attention of a person passing by, and he ran off. That is smart. That's smart. Yes, you scream like bloody murder. That's smart. You scream. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That evening on January 12th, 1960, Carol Grady, a 16-year-old girl, was babysitting her cousins. 
As she played the piano, Spanbauer lurked outside the house watching her through the window. Armed with his pistol, he entered the house and pocketed a small amount of cash and brought the teenager to the bedroom. Spanbauer lashed her down, spread eagle onto the bed, slashed apart her clothes with a knife, and raped her. Mm. Her uncle returned, and Spanbauer shot him in the face and escaped from the house. Since his first burglary, when he got that handgun, Spanbauer drifted around the southeastern Wisconsin area for almost a month and a half. There's a record of an attempted robbery near Milwaukee, and finally he was picked up for carrying a concealed firearm in Sheboygan County. Sheboygan. I said it, Sheboygan. Haven't you heard of it? Yeah. There. I, I used to go there. No, you didn't. Did You're such a liar. On February 16th, Spanbauer broke down in police custody, and he told his stories, and everything came out. Everything. Everything. In court, the judge labeled him as a, quote, sexual deviant, unquote, and sentenced him to 70 years in prison. David Spanbauer, age right now, was 19. He was a Wisconsin convict, also a sexual deviant. Yeah. During his prison time, Spanbauer's mother, Evelyn, hammered authorities with letters encouraging her son's release at his parole hearings. Well, she hammered him. She wrote to Governor Warren Knowles and claimed that her son was not a pervert. He ain't no pervert. Mm-hmm. And Spanbauer's conviction was just a result of the rape victim being a hoary woman, quote. And that's, that's a quote. Yes, and of Spanbauer being poor. Well, you know what, though? His mother's efforts were useless. Police officials, I mean, prison officials constantly suspected him of homosexual liaisons. 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 With other inmates, especially the younger prisoners. They also noted he was an intelligent and a good worker, but he had a very bad temper. During his 1971 parole hearing, Spam Bauer had an outburst, just a slight one, and later claimed that he didn't have any control over what he couldn't alter. While in prison, he got a tattoo of a devil on his forearm, and it would be a symbol of his potential for evil and an incriminating mark. He was finally released in May of 1972. How? Why? Who knows? Who knows? And it seemed like he was making positive steps in his life. He enrolled at Madison Area Technical College and maintained to be average while living at the YMCA. Really? YMCA. <laughs> at the University of Wisconsin campus in Madison. But he quickly became entangled in the local crime scene. He let an escaped prisoner borrow his car, which I don't feel you should ever do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that was a good choice. And the fugitive was arrested after a robbery in nearby Middleton. Spanbauer was dangerously close to going back to prison. But in 1913, the Wisconsin government created the first prisoner work release program for those in county jail. Inmates were allowed to go to work in the morning and return to jail to stay overnight. Really? It was known as the Huber Law. Okay. 
And it's long been a part of Wisconsin. It's legal. That was stupid. Yeah, well. Because couldn't they just run? They could. I mean, it's not that bad. You just go to work and then you... Just go there to sleep so you got a free room at night. Which, I mean, if you have a bad wife, it's really no different than that kind of life, right? Mm, Could be better. (laughs) Could be better. I heard it's free. (laughs) For being involved in the robbery case, Spambauer did some time in the Dane County Jail, but was able to get out with Huber Law privileges working for the Madison Parks Department. Madison is often called by its nickname. Do you know what that is? Maddie. Mad Town. Really? Yep. And it's been referred to as the City of Four Lakes. Two of the lakes, Lake Mendota and Lake Monona, characterize the city by forming a narrow isthmus that blends the downtown university and capital districts. The lakes lend the city much beauty. As soon as the warm spring weather starts blending into hints of hot summer, the beaches are loaded with co-eds from the university. Well, Spanbauer worked the parts, and the city beaches in the hot summer sun of 1972. Yeah. He eyeballed the bikini-clad women laying in the sun. He had just spent 13 years in prison. The half-naked women at the beach drove him mad with sexual urges. Later, he told psychiatrists he did what he did out of sexual frustration, and he simply couldn't wait any longer. There's a thing called Rosie, and you should use that. She's a straight-out cousin from Palmy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just jack off. Yeah, okay. No need to write. Okay, anyway. He said to a social worker that he was a social and must have been born retarded. Well. That was quotes. Yeah. He knew of Token Creek Park, and that is where he drove to rape the girl. Mm. Well, she was 17 years old. She was a waitress out hitchhiking. He picked her up on Highway 51 by brandishing a knife and while driving to the park. He told her that he was going to rape her, and when he was through with her, he would run her over with his car and toss her body in a ditch. Mm. She started crying, and David Spanbauer cried along with her. Well, at least that was him. It was August 11th, 1972. He tied her hands and had his way with her. She told police the man had a tattoo of the devil on his forearm, and later when Spanbauer was rounded up as a suspect, she identified him as the man who raped her. Spanbauer tried to play it all off. In his eyes, they got along fine, and that everything was cool and they had consensual sex. Yeah, right. Well, in his eyes. Well. he I heard he was a little cockeyed. Spanbauer was found guilty for abduction and rape and assistant district attorney John Burr asked for the maximum sentence of 50 years on how does he keep getting out how do they I don't know I don't know with all of the facts of the case before him judge Richard Bardwell reasoned that the rape was much more mild than Spanbauer's previous rape 
How was any kind of rape mild? You know, the last one was the one where he tied the victim down, spread eagle, raped her at knife point, and then blasted another man in the face with a handgun, if you would recall that. Therefore, the judge figures, Spanbauer has moved from being a, quote, very dangerous sex offender to now merely, quote, just dangerous. Really? So there has been some improvement. Wow. End quote. He's a freaking retard. Retard. And that is not politically correct, but yeah. I'm sorry he is. He noted that Spanbauer was still a sociopath, but his tendencies weren't so severe. Well, Bardwell gave Spanbauer 12 years in prison that ran concurrent with his revoked parole. The girl was, in effect, asking for it, said the judge. Now, how does that piss you off? This is the quote from the judge. From the judge? The girl was, in effect, asking for it. They are tempting fate when they do it. I guess that means putting on a bathing suit. Yeah. Sexist <laughs> asshole. God. ADA Burr thought Spanbauer was a threat to society and he was enraged by the light sentence. Burr later said that Spanbauer was, quote, in the top ten of the most vicious and violent people I've ever had the displeasure of coming into contact with. End quote. He continued to shit. Sorry, <laughs> he not hit the table. He continued to pine for an early parole and continued to mention his former wife as part of his plan of making a new positive life once Wait, he got out. He's had a freaking wife yes, before. Yes, Spanbauer planned on moving in with her. But nothing he could scheme could change the adamant decision of the parole board. They continually refused parole until they no longer could. Until his mandatory release date on January 29th, 1991. Mm -hmm. He left prison with $8,000 in savings from his prison work. Wow. And moved in with his sister, Judy, who was married to Clark Taddock an Oshkosh police officer. <laughs> it was a temporary stay, and once he got settled in with a job at the local 7-Up bottling plant, he moved into an apartment of his own on the west side of Oshkosh. Hmm. He was out on parole and had to file reports of his own goings and whereabouts. In his descriptions of what he was up to, he would write a dull platitude and tag at the end of the sentence, Smile! Okay, that was the cringiest freaking thing I've yeah. ever seen in my life. Everything Jesus. was fine, he wrote, and it seemed like he was having, like he was readjusting to life on the outside. On Christmas Eve of 1991, Spanbauer had a heart attack, and for a moment, there was no heartbeat. But no. the doctors brought him back to life. Thank you so much, doctors. <laughs> Maybe that was the Lord saying, time to go. Pack your shit up and go. Yeah. His poor heart condition would haunt him for the remainder oh, of his, his life. Oh, his poor heart condition. His poor heart condition. Oh, my goodness. He worked early mornings and finished up mid-afternoon at the bottling plant and would head up to a couple nearby taverns to knock back a few cold ones. He never got blatantly drunk. He was a slow and steady drinker 
that minded his own business, and one tavern owner tagged him to be a, quote, nice guy. Yeah, whatever. Wisconsin, oh, well, excuse me, not Wisconsin. Sorry. Oshkosh. No, Winnicon. <laughs> oh, my God. Is a small town of the Fox Valley region not far from Spanbauer's known circle of roaming around. In the early 90s, a band of drunken redneck teenagers called the Winnicon Possum Kickers. Oh, it was actually a band? I thought it was like a group, you know, you say band is in group, you know. Yeah, you yeah, they, yeah, you they were a group. It. Not a band, they were a group. Just a little group of teenagers. Okay, yeah, that's what I yeah, thought. Yeah, and they called themselves the Winnicon Possum Kickers. <laughs> like a little gang. Yeah. Proud back roads and shined opossums with flashlights. Good. They were some bad mofos. They so stupid. <laughs> Once the opossum froze up, they would kick the animal to death with steel toe work boots. That was evening entertainment for the local juvenile delinquents. How of the bored area. <laughs> do you have to be to do that? Maybe they have the positive mindset so that it doesn't go and spread its diseases to other humans. Maybe what about their disease. Maybe they're thinking of stupidity. <laughs> Winnicon was the home of 20-year-old Laura Deppies. Deppies. Yes. She worked at the Fox River Mall in Grand Chute, and when she finished her shift on August 19, 1992, she went over to visit her friends in Menasha, and she never showed up. Her friends found her locked car in their apartment parking lot. Well, guess what? What? David Spanbauer just started his summer vacation the day before. She is still missing to this day. Wow. Another girl disappeared. Her bicycle was found near her rural home in Ripon and Fond du Lac County on August 23rd of 1992. Six weeks later, her body was found about 100 miles away in a cornfield ditch near Tower Hill State Park, not far from the Wisconsin River. Her name, her name was Ronell Eschdit. No. She was 10 years old. David Spanbauer raped and killed her. He used his 1988 Ford Door Eagle Premier to transport her body. Oh, but it wasn't all that bad. He sold that and later <laughs> bought a maroon 1991 Pontiac Bonneville. Almost two years later, on the 4th of July of 1994... 24-year-old Miriam Sturia was riding her bike on a country road near Hartman Creek State Park when a maroon Pontiac banged into her bike hard enough for her to crash. No, well, it doesn't take much for that. Though. Spanbauer emerged from the car. He said he was trying to scare her and he had a pistol. Another car came coming down the road slowed down the Spanbauer, got back into his car, and drove away. Storia reported the incident to the police, and the FBI hired a professional artist from California to sketch out the suspect's features. And that was one of six pictures of what they thought the attacker might look like. 
State and federal investigators in a charge of the case were unsure if they had reliable composite drawings, and they decided only to release the sketches to involved law enforcement bodies. So they could have caught them a lot sooner maybe if they released it to the public. Yeah. They already had plenty of leads to follow up on, and special agents did not want to flood of bad tips coming in if the sketch were shown to the public. Spanbauer was on a roll in the summer and autumn of 1994. It was the longest stint of freedom he had ever tasted since he was 19 years old. It was overwhelming. He explored it. For him, robbery, rape, murder, they were addicting if you did not get caught. His crime spree continued throughout the Fox Valley region. He burglarized homes with the intention of there being no one there to have a confrontation with. You know, just a matter of getting the goods in and out. But if a person were home, he produced a pistol to finish the robbery at gunpoint. He sounds like a douchebag. On July 9th, less than a week later, okay, Captain, we are not, oh no, they say douche canoe, so yeah, they <laughs> say douchebag. Didn't want to play drive. <laughs> On July 9th, less than a week later, after he attacked Staria, Spanbauer broke into a home in Appleton armed with a handgun. He thought nobody was home, but he found 21-year-old Trudy Jesk in a bedroom and fired one shot into her chest. She would have been a witness, but she died from the bullet wound. Wound. On Labor Day, September 5th, a 12-year-old girl from nearby, Weowiga, rode her bike on Sanders Road near her grandma's house in the township of Dayton. It wasn't far from the place where Spanbauer ran down Staria in his car. He got her into his car and molested her and drove 75 miles north up into Langland County near Kempster. Five or six hours transpired from when he picked her up and when he finally decided to end it. He strangled her and stabbed her and threw her body into a steep ditch. Mm. Police organized a search for the missing girl using a country church for the headquarters. Hundreds of volunteers helped canvas the surrounding woods in a 10-mile perimeter, and the FBI joined the case. Her body was found five days later. Her name was Cora Jones. His attacks continued and occurred with regularity. On October 20th, he raped a 15-year-old girl, and on November 5th, he raped a 31-year-old woman in the Apple Tree area. By now, the Wapaka County Sheriff's Department, the Langlade County Sheriff's Department, the FBI, and the Wisconsin Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation were on the case. Suspecting the string of assaults and murders were more than a coincidence. Combined Locks is a small Wisconsin town named after the boat locks on the Fox River. That's odd. It's a quiet, woodsy place, an old sawmill and pulp paper town that reminds one of David Litch's rural community of Twin Peaks. You I forgot what that. a paper town was. Um, a what? A paper town. Do you not know what that is? I forgot. Um, uh... Where this made it, where all the houses are made of like cardboard. 
No. Oh. Are you serious? <laughs> Did you? Okay, you came up with that conclusion. I don't know. I'll, I'll try to look it up. Why don't you do that? Well, I, my phone's dead, but I'll look it up after your story. It is not the place where killers roam through people's backyards. But on November 14th of 1994, Gerald Argall went to his home in combined lots and discovered a man breaking into his house. He gave chase and tackled and wrestled the 53-year-old man into submission, and when the police arrived, they arrested the prowler on burglary charges. While in custody, the police noticed that the tools found in the suspect's car matched those used in the two home invasion rapes that had happened earlier in the fall. The police kept up their interrogations, and after four days, he confessed in the presence of his attorney, Tom Zoisk, to kidnapping and killing the two little girls and for the shooting death of Jessica. Langley County Sheriff David Steger and said that his confession contained details that only the killer would know about and felt that he was their guy. The cases were finally closed. He was the man that left Ronell dead near the Wisconsin River two years before. He also confessed to the rapes and numerous burglaries. And yes, he was the man in the sketch picture, the one that knocked Staria off her bike near Hartman Creek State Park. Analysis of the carpet fiber found on the body of Cora Jones proved to match the carpet Spanbauer's Pontiac Bonneville. The carpet fiber. The carpet fiber. Spanbauer was cleared of any connection to the 1992 case of Laura Deppies. Spanbauer's crimes ranged through five counties, and each county prosecutor wanted a piece of them. Spanbauer's That's attorney. nasty. I know. I know. I wouldn't want a piece of it. I wouldn't want them. none of it. You see that picture? Uh-uh. Um, at the out of, out of gaming. Gosh, you're doing a hell of a job with these names, aren't you? At the out of gaming County Courthouse, wanted posters were tacked to the wall, and one of them hanging up at the time of the trial asked for information about the Trudy Jesk case and volunteered a $10,000 reward for tips that led to the killer's capture. Another poster called for the information regarding the deputy's case. Shut up. (laughs) Sorry. There were only two of other faces of missing women that hung on the wall. During the proceedings, Biskupic painted Spanbauer as the criminal he was calling him a festering soul and a coward, and asked him to turn to face the courtroom audience composed of the victim's family stricken with grief. Quote, he is evil, and at the same time, he's pathetic, said Biskupic. You know that every single impersonation that you do is just a country redneck. Not everybody's a country redneck. My people are. Oh, my goodness. Spanbauer said nothing. He was 53 years old, but looked slightly older. His hair was gray and thin, the appearance of an oaf that spent 35 years of adulthood in prison. Spanbauer's attorney, Zoish, admitted that his client was sane and felt remorse. Bullshit. No. On Thursday, December the 8th, 1994, Spanbauer pleaded no contest to two charges and guilty <gasps> to the remaining 16 charges. 
I don't mean to be a spoiler, but mine pleaded no contest, too. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? Whoa! That's like one out of... Five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was found guilty for first-degree intentional homicide in the Jones and Eschketnet murders. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> wait, where, wait, wait, wait. Where, e wait, 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 where's the word at? Right here. E-I-C-H-S-T-E-D-T-H. Okay, it's, see, I did just as good. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really difficult, okay? It's really difficult. The sentencing came on December the 20th. The courtroom was packed to see what fate Spanbauer would receive. The county courthouse was full of the families of Cora, Brunel, Trudy, and also the families of Spanbauer's two previous rape victims. It was standing room only, and part of the audience was sent out of the courtroom to watch the verdict on television. Circuit Judge James Bayorgan was a far different judge than Judge Bardwell back in 1972. There, there we go. was there no we leniency. Bardwell. And there was no speculation of any inmate innate goodness that might be left and coaxed out of Stan Bauer. It was the end of the road for him. Judge Bayorgan said, I don't know the, from what cesspool of hell you slithered from, and I can't send you back. Oh my God, that is the worst that part was ever. Name, It's supposed to be like from around Wisconsin, right? Shut up. Wait. No, just don't. Yes. Where, okay, what was the, what were you supposed to be saying? Okay, well, I'll just tell you this. Okay. He said, I don't know from what cesspool in hell you slithered from. I don't know. Uh, and I, I don't can't know from send what cesspool you back. To your... Dwayne in Ireland. <laughs> he speculated that it couldn't be possible for the God they believed in would let a piece of shit like you walk this earth. Ooh. End quote. <laughs> oh, wow. He took into account the life expectancies of Cora Jones, Rennell, and Trudy to calculate the time he deserved to be in prison. And Spanbauer was handed three life terms plus the maximum consecutive sentences on the other crimes, a total of 403 years. That's pretty good. The earliest possible time Spanbauer could be a free man would be December 20th, 2191. Oh, wow. Yeah. But however, he would not make it that far because he died in prison. Yeah. <sighs> Spanbauer died on Monday, July 29th, 2002 at Dodge Correctional Institution. He was pronounced dead at 425 p.m. in the prison hospital. An autopsy was performed and it revealed that the final stages of liver disease and coronary heart disease were the causes of his death. Spanbauer previously instructed the doctors that he should not be resuscitated if he flatlined. That is David Spanbauer. Really? What you got for us? I'm going to do... Let's see. I'm going to do Donovan Franks, but let me look at this last page. But at least he wasn't put on death row or something, you know, which when exactly. had didn't have a death sentence. But, and then he, like, got to live by himself. Because, you know what, a lot of people, a lot of killers and stuff, they are already reclusive. They don't like company. So, I mean, it's yeah, like, I know. 
heaven, except for they don't get killed. I mean, they get to live by themselves for yeah, free. Yeah, that's true. For it's like years and years and then die of natural causes. Yep. His name is Donovan Dean Franks. And like sausage Franks. Yet again, we head back into Oregon. Portland, Oregon, to be exact. Where murders have swept through its cities throughout um, the years. But um, heartache and sorrow fills the lives of so many there who's lost loved ones but particularly in this case we'll be talking about mary ann alman age 32 and her cute five-year-old son ryan lee all do both die the story begins at the alman residence located in the 2400 block of southeast 79th avenue that's a mouthful it was tuesday June 2nd, 1981. Right near my birthday. <laughs> Poor Mary and Ryan disappeared, and they were last seen by a neighbor around 1 p.m. standing in front of the house about to start washing the family's white sports car. Sadly, this chore could not be completed. Suspicions of foul play did not arise until later that Tuesday evening. However, when Mary... Anne's husband arrived home from work and found the garage door open. The white sports car was missing, and the front door of the home was wide open. Once inside the house, he made a frantic search of every room, calling out his wife and son's name. But there were no answers, and there was a note saying that there was no note saying that they would return shortly. He didn't really expect to, to find a note. He reasoned that if his wife and son had left, at least they would lock up the house. He called um, the Portland Police Bureau, and he reported his wife and son missing. And... Normally, a person would have to be missing for 72 hours, but because of these circumstances, um, the, said circumstances. <laughs> um, the police did accept um, the report, and officers were dispatched to the Alman home. The distraught husband told the officers that he called home about noon and talked with his wife, and that he was his wife's, and that he, what the hell, yeah, and that he called back an hour later, but received no answer. And this was in the 80s? Yeah, so I was, there wasn't I no kept cell skipping a freaking line, I don't know, does that ever happen to you? Yeah, but this was no cell phones and stuff, so this had to be landline calling. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> he told the cops that Tuesday was his wife's day off at a Southwest Portland Safeway food store where she worked as a clerk and planned to use the day to catch up on some chores around the house. But when he re re arrived home, the wife and son that he loved were nowhere. And his statements were being taken. Other officers began contacting every known friend Mary had, but 
Apparently, no one had seen her or or her boy. But was the vehicle in the yard? No, it was gone. Oh. Then they contacted Alman's babysitter. However, they were informed that Mrs. Alman and her son were in front of their house at approximately 1.30 p.m. And, quote, She was out near her car, said Diana Stevenson, the babysitter. It looked like she was getting ready to wash it, which is what the other neighbor said. Later the same afternoon, Diana told police that she drove by the Almond's house and saw the garage door was open, as well as the front door to the house. It's not like her to leave the house open, and as sketchy as it was, officers took down information about the missing mother and her son and marking the beginning of an intensive, hard-driving investigation. Well, I also think it's sketchy that that babysitter didn't even speak hello to her. Yeah. I mean, if she's supposed to be keeping a child, you don't you see her and you don't say, hey, or flatten the child here with me, or anything like that. And she saw her twice? I mean, she rode by the house twice? She don't make no sense to me. Yeah, that's true. But um, this would lead the police. Now you don't mess me up. That would lead police from the state's northern border to its southernmost line. Following the missing person report, the night passed very slowly for Mrs. Elman's husband as he made countless attempts to find his wife and son but his efforts ended in failure and frustration despite his very high hopes that he would find that he would find his child and wife alive and he wasn't under suspicion at this time he i think he was but um i would think so in the meantime crime experts remained at the Alman home late in the night looking for clues but, of course, you know, it turned up to be nothing. Earlier in the evening, an all-points bulletin was out concerning the missing white sports car. But again, the investigators obtained no results. It's like the woman and child just vanished into thin air. Early the next morning, Lieutenant Paul Lovejoy of the <laughs> Oregon State Police Office in Bend, Bend reported that a state trooper who only just learned of the disappearance, he stopped a white sports car parked off U.S. Highway 97, about a mile or so south of Lava Butte. Uh-uh, that is not how you say it. <laughs> Lava Butte. We are not in France. Then fine, Lava Butte. Yeah, there you go. Lava Butte. <laughs> At 5 p.m., the day before, nearly 150 miles southeast of Portland. That was 150 miles from where she lived. Okay. This is the same day? Same night or something? Yeah. Okay. Well, the next day. Okay. As a result, police launched a massive search of the area that same morning, covering thick, brushy terrain by foot. As the hunt continued, every patch of ground was gone over over and over again, but there was no hope. 
Hours passed with no results, and the starch was, in fact, beginning to look hopeless. The starch? I didn't mean to put that. <laughs> I didn't mean to put I'm that. like, what is that? <laughs> I mistyped it. I think it's supposed to be search. Search, okay. <laughs> I was like, what the, the hell search. is a starch? I didn't mean to put that. <laughs> Um, but just before the search was about to be called off at 11 a.m., two volunteers stumbled over the bodies oh of a woman and a little boy lying face down near a pile of brush and thorns. Shocked and horrified, neither of the men touched their bodies. Why you got your child out there with you searching? Didn't you say it was a child? No, I said two volunteers. Oh, I thought you said one was a child. Oh, no. they, yeah, they Okay, I got you. The, Never mind. I got it. Missed. Gosh. But they ran off to go get assistance. Mm -hmm. It was such a gruesome sight. Um, officers speculated, and it was presumed that the victims pleaded for their lives mm -hmm. after being made to lie face down in front of their killer, only moments before being shot in the back of their heads. And this was at that 150-mile-away place? Yeah. Okay. Um, the misery of waiting and the anguish created by not knowing the fate of his son and wife was finally over for the distraught husband in Portland. Only sorrow and grief filled his lonely mind when law enforcement officials told him that the victims found shot to death at Lava Boot gotcha. Lava Butt were Marianne and Ryan Lee Allen. In search of clues, um they searched the ground near the bodies and items Look for items um, of like hairs or bits of clothing fi fiber. Yes, fibers. Yes. Although such items were not present, the crimin criminalist did find, after much searching, to sp two spent bullet cartridges, which they believed one housed 38 caliber slugs, thus prompting them to theorize that the victims were indeed cruelly killed at the spot where their bodies were found. Near the area where the bodies were found, police found an interesting set of footprints. And basically, it looked like the person was crippled because they found imprints of a walking cane. Oh, my God. Or stick. Or what stick. So, could their killer be crippled? Could he? Oh, crip. Without finding any other evidence that... Maybe his cane was also a gun. That would be pretty cool, actually. But anyways, they decided that nothing else could be done there. So they removed Mary and Ryan from the brush and sent them to a van that was waiting. The bodies were taken to Portland where the autopsies would be performed. I'm so, okay, well, they got kidnapped from Portland. Yeah. The police then went door to door to the Almond's neighbors, trying to find useful leads in the case. But why didn't they do that before? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, this provided very little information that went nowhere. Following the completion of the autopsies, Dr. Lumen, which that was the person who autopsied in the last episode, or 
Or was it the one before? I can't He's remember. He's a good coroner. Yeah. He confirmed that each victim died as a result of one gunshot wound to the back of the head and reported that he recovered two thirty-eight caliber slugs, which he turned over to the Oregon State Police Crime Labs for study. Are those point thirty-eight? Yes, they uh-huh. are. <laughs> he said that the victims had been dead for a relatively short time when their bodies were discovered. Well, I reckon so. It ain't been but a day or so. Yeah, about 24 hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, which he arrived at that conclusion by observing the extent of the changes that had been occurred since the death. And the Rick and Mortis hadn't been in a severe, severe stage yet. So he Plus, said, they'd only been missing about a day and a half. Yeah, he said that the victims had suffered no other significant injuries. News of the tragic deaths traveled very quickly, and friends and relatives of the Alman family were deeply shocked. Their former babysitter expressed her feelings publicly. Quote, She was always happy and cheerful, said Diana Stevenson. Every time you do a quote, every time you do it, you're all like, (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to believe it when you know someone so well and it happens right there practically in front of your eyes. So well you don't even say hey whenever you see To one of your good neighbors. End quote. Meanwhile, concerned citizens began forming neighborhood protection groups in an attempt to increase public awareness about the seriousness of the increased violence in Portland, particularly since the Almonds were murdered. Meanwhile, police did continue their investigation into the double execution-style murders of Mary Ann Alman and her son, but there were no results. Well, they ain't having no luck with nothing. No. They theorized that the mother and son were abducted from their home between 1.30 and 2 p.m. by an unknown gunman and then were driven to an area known as Lava Butt <laughs> where they <laughs> were murdered at approximately 5 p.m. In an unexpected turn of offense, after reading news reports of the two murders, two Oregon State Police officers reported they did stop a white sports car for speeding, heading on south on U.S. 97 near Gilchrist in central Oregon at 7.20 p.m. on the evening of the murders. Was it an old cripple man? We'll get there. The driver, Donovan Dean Franks, 45, was cited and released as he was not wanted by police, and the officers didn't know he was driving the stolen vehicle because the APB hadn't been sent out yet. Good God. But, um... And they didn't check the license plate? See who it was registered to? Yeah, well... Obviously not. But they did discover that, that he indeed was driving um, the Almond's stolen car. Now that they had Franks as a likely suspect, Portland detectives were notified that Franks was a possible suspect. And checking him out through the Department of Motor Vehicles, they discovered that he lived in the 2700 block of Southeast 79th Avenue. Basically two blocks from the Almonds. Mm -hmm. Detectives then contacted Frank's neighbors, Penny Sue Almonds, 
Um, it's Penny Sue Martin, who told the cops that he had been in a recent auto accident. She said she often saw him exercise by walking down the street with an aid of a cane. She also informed the woman that he lived with his mother. Oh, shit. But that's not really any help, really. I mean, yeah, if you go talk loser. to the mother, but that, yeah, that's all. <laughs> that's the main conclusion. Meanwhile, back in Southern Oregon, state police trooper Brad Smith stopped a white sports car in Klamath Falls and ordered the driver out of the vehicle. As he attempted to arrest the driver for drunken driving, the man pointed a handgun at the officer. Well, that'll help you out. Yeah, no. Smith tried to, you know, talk to the man, try to reason with him, but he didn't have any luck with that. And when he saw his chance, he lunged at him, pushing him to the ground. Shooting. They then struggled violently with each, with each other, and Smith eventually did disarm the man by knocking the gun from his hand. As he struggled, he did eventually gain control. Was this of Donovan? The, Huh? Was this Donovan? Yeah. Well, he should have been able to knock him to the ground quite easily if he had to have a cane. Yeah, yeah, but he had a gun in his face. Well, sort of in his face. But um, he did manage to gain control over the crazy man. Smith attempted to flag down numerous pat- passing motorists for help, but they continued to pass right on by. You know, like... Normal, but don't you worry. They were slowing down to look. Normally, people normally people don't stop. But they slow down in case there's a situation. They just don't stop. They slow down as cold up traffic. Of course, the struggle went on for a little bit of time with Smith apparently get his cane and beat him over. Unable to subdue him singly. Great God, that's a sad ass belief. But fortunately for Smith, um. Well, in about 10 minutes, basically, Klamath County Sheriff's Deputy did arrive after being called and helped Smith arrest the drunken suspect. So the man crippled, old, and drunk, and he couldn't subdue him? Nope. A short time later, they identified the drunk man as Donovan Dean Franks and confirmed that he had, in fact, been driving the Almond's stolen sports car. Frank was then charged with attempted murder of Trooper Smith, as well as unauthorized use of murder vehicle and drunk driving, and was held in district, I mean, in um, Klamath County Jail with bail set at one hundred and thirty-five thousand three hundred and ten dollars. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I know. But according to Deschutes County District Attorney Lewis Sleekin. No charges were filed against Frank for the deaths of Mary Ann Alman and her son. Frank's weapon was identified as a .38 caliber pistol, the same type of bullets detectives found in the two victims. At the Oregon State Police Crimes Lab in Portland, a test bullet was fired from Frank's pistol into a large piece of wax. Which, you know, so that it wouldn't damage the bullets. Or they could do it through water. Well, anyways, you know that when a gun is made, rifling tools, you know, used in the manufacturing, leave little marks, basically, and scars on the bullet. Duh, so then they can match. Files. So then, whenever they match. 
and the tests were conclusive, and they both matched. So this proved that the the um, bullets that were found in the victims matched the gun that owned to Donovan Dean Frank. Franks, yeah. <laughs> and he was charged in the Chutes County Circuit <laughs> Court, I don't know how to say it, with dual counts of intentional murder, felony murder, and kidnapping. And the abduction and deaths that will be never known. Are you fucking kidding? You don't even know? No, there wasn't. Oh my God. There wasn't no motive. He just grabbed him and drove him. There and wasn't him? a motive. Oh, there was a motive. And so we ain't gonna know the motive. No. This was a crap story. There was no motive. This is like a movie that you watch just for did two it. hours and then he just a crap did it. ending. Well, anyways, the abduction and deaths of Mary Ann Alman and Ryan Lee Alman. Franks entered a plea deal of no contest, knowing that he could get the maximum sentence. He told the judge he just wanted to get it over with. Judge Copenhaver then sentenced Franks on two consecutive life terms on the two charges of intentional murder, imposing a five-year minimum sentence of the death of Mrs. Alman. That's five nothing. Five years. Um, because of the use of a gun in the murder. A 10-year minimum sentence was imposed in the death of Ryan Lee Alman because of the boy's age and a lack of remorse on the part of the defendant. Oh, for a whole 10 years. It's like it's like they're saying, "Oh my gosh, she got all this time because of the boy's yeah. young age and lack of remorse." That's that is not so stupid. However, actual time served will be determined by the state parole board. Great, that's super. Yeah, that story sucked because <laughs> of the ending. Yeah, you could have told me that at the beginning. I wouldn't even listen. Basically, because he didn't have a motive. <sighs> he had one. He just didn't say it. Yeah. He didn't tell anybody. I would have gave him 20 years for not saying the motive. Yeah, like, why don't you just go and tell the motive? Yeah, just say something. Well, that was a sucky ending. Thank you. You know, it's like a movie that you watch for two hours. I just and... said that. <laughs> I know, I just repeated it. Anyway, as always, I have been Stan. And I'm always Drew. Go get those ratings and reviews put up, please. And oh. we'll see you next time. Down in these boondocks, baby. Oh, my lord.